I have this tradition, it seems, that the week between Christmas and New Year, I end up preaching so much so, in fact, that uh, Pastor Tim calls me the closer um, at the Sugar Grove campus because I'm normally there. And then last year, I was at Aurora because Travis was going to be out of town. And this year, it might have been October that Pastor Phil knew he was going to be out of town this weekend, and so he preempted Tim. And so I'm beginning to feel like a kind of utility reliever instead of the closer. Um, But this last week of December always feels strange to me. I don't know about you, but it it feels like sort of somebody pushed pause between one year and the next. Because to my way of thinking, Christmas is sort of the end of the year. And New Year's is, well, the beginning of the new year, and there's this week in between that's kind of not one thing or the other. And so what do we do during that week besides eat too much and maybe watch too much TV or, in my case, spend too much time on the couch because I had a nasty sinus infection and couldn't move? But, you know, what we normally do is we sit back and we do, on the one hand, we kind of look back at the year that has happened. Um, In the past, I've done things like looked at the celebrities who have died over the course of the year, and a year or two ago, it felt like my childhood was going away. Or you look at the big events that have happened or things like that. Or on the other hand, you think about the coming year, right? And you think about resolutions, and i got to get in shape, and i got to eat healthier, and i got to do something better financially, and all, all of those things. And it makes sense at the turning of the year to kind of take stock of our lives and to say, okay, is my compass set in the right heading? Am I going in the right direction? And I've preached more than a few sermons over the years um, on that. But this year, I really felt like I wanted to do something different. You know, in the last few weeks across our campuses, we've spent time looking at sort of the songs of a few of the main players in the nativity story, right? We've, We've looked at the story of Jesus' birth. We looked at these human players like Zachariah and Mary and Joseph. And we've caught a glimpse of their lives. And we've, we've seen the human family of Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever taken a look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. It's not exactly like top of the list reading for most people. But there's some pretty, pretty interesting characters in there. Like some actually surprising and from the wrong side of the track sorts of people in those lists. But today... I want to look at the flip side. Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus as king and the savior of mankind, respectively. Today we're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And this is the other genealogy, the genealogy we sort of don't look at at Christmas time. I call it the divine genealogy, if you will. So I want to jump just for a moment today, into the paradox that is Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer as we do this that we're going to get a vision for who Jesus is that will capture our hearts and minds and motivate us in the coming year to bring Christmas home 
with us into our hearts, not just one day of the year, but throughout the year. To sense the immensity of what God has done on our behalf. And this is because I believe that when we keep Jesus first and foremost, that all of those other things, those very real needs for self-evaluation and fine-tuning and all of the resolutions and all of that stuff will come back into better focus. So, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world made, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one, this is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and it is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Do you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, for the Christmas that we have just celebrated, and for the ongoing work that Jesus does in our hearts and lives. I pray that this morning we would catch just a small glimpse of who you are and what that means for us in the coming year. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now I have to apologize that there is not an outline in your, uh, your notes. As I said, I was um, on the couch sick and so my outline got in about two hours late um, and so it had already been printed by that time. <clears throat> but Phil did get it, um, I believe, for in here. And as I told my daughter, I only have eight points, so um, she gave me a look when, uh, when I said that. Most of them aren't long, so it's, it's not going to be that bad. I love the Gospel of John. In fact, these 18 verses may be my favorite passage in Scripture. They may be the most significant in the entire book. In, at the end of John, John 20, verse 31, John gives his reason for writing the gospel, his Gospel. He says that these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, these 18 verses here set up the rest of the entire book. And it's pretty amazing what John does in these 18 verses. 
He breaks down lines and categories. He destroys long-held beliefs. He upends social structures. His message is deep and yet simple. And we could camp here for weeks. We won't, but we could. And in the middle of this, you'll notice that John interrupted himself sort of twice to talk about John the Baptist, the other John, the one that prepared the way for Jesus. And we don't have time to go into John today, and I'm basically going to be skipping over the tops of what's going on here today. So we're going to set aside verses 6 to 8 and verse 15 for this morning, other than to say that those four verses serve as an important purpose, I think at least two. See, they anchor John chapter 1 into the real world, into the world that John's readers would have known about. And they also connect it to what will happen right next in this gospel. You see, John the Baptist was a known commodity for a large portion of of John's hearers, probably. He was a real person who lived and died, a figure larger than life, a figure who was inextricably linked with the real life, living and breathing Jesus of Nazareth. So let's dive in. Number one, verses one and two, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. If you've been around church for a while, that seems just something that we say, that we believe. But for a Jewish man to begin his account of Jesus in this way, well, It was enough to get him banished from the synagogue for blasphemy forever. You see, what John does here in the beginning is ties his message directly to the first book of the Torah, to Genesis 1, in the beginning. And I don't know if John realized he was writing scripture or not when he started writing his letter, but he certainly picked a good way to make the connection. In Genesis, we get creation. In John 1, we get a new creation. In the beginning means before all else, but it also means a lot more than that. First cause, origin. And so John's Jewish hearers would have immediately made those connections to Genesis, even though Genesis was written in Hebrew and John is writing in Greek. And they would have seen that he was pointing deeper. One commentator says that he's pointing to the root of the universe. I like that. There's only one thing at the root of the universe, and that's God himself. And then John does this really unexpected thing. He doesn't say God. He doesn't say in the beginning God. He says in the beginning was the word. We hear this, and like I said, if we're brought up in church, we hear it as code for Jesus. Well, we should, because we are Christians after all. But if you didn't grow up around church, you might be scratching your head. Why the word? What does that even mean? And one of the things we miss is that John is making an absolutely brilliant move here. It's something that we should not expect for a guy who has less than an eighth grade education and he's a backwater, uneducated fisherman. 
The word word in Greek functions on several levels. And so one of the things we need to do is back up for a second and realize that John is writing to probably the widest audience of all of the Gospels. It's both deeply Jewish in its thought pattern and also very approachable, very intentionally approachable to those outside of the Jewish faith and culture, to the Greek culture. John deliberately uses words that make sense both to the Jews and to the Greeks that are listening to him. He's probably writing this from Ephesus. And the word that we translate word is the word logos in Greek. We get, in English, words like logic and logistics from it. To the Greeks, it meant reason or thought or speech. But where it came into its own was philosophy. In the 6th century BC, there was this philosopher, Heraclitus, who said that the logos was always existent and that all things happened through the logos. About a hundred or so years later, Plato briefly talked about it. And in the more contemporary world of John, the Stoic philosophers said that the universe was pervaded by the logos. So this is not God as we know God. And to be sure, the average Greek person didn't know what Heraclitus or Plato or the Stoic philosophers really and truly were all about any more than you and I could tell you what contemporary philosophers are talking about today. But they did know that the Lagos meant something divine. They would have sat up and taken notice. But John is Jewish. So what does the word mean to a Jew? We're going to get to Jesus as creator more specifically in a moment. But when God creates in Genesis 1, seven times in verses 3, 6, 9, 14, 20, 24, and 26, we read, and God said, speech, word. For the Hebrew, word, when connected to God, is active. It is a deed. It is something that is done. And throughout the Old Testament, we hear the word of the Lord. And it talks about God's divine action. Something God is doing. We see the word of the Lord come to prophets all of the time in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 55, God's word goes out to accomplish his will. In Psalm 29, it hovers over the waters. In Isaiah 2.3 and Micah 4.2, The word of God is identified with the law. So, to the Jewish person, the word of God is intimately tied to who God is, not the same as God, but completely connected. And by the time of John, there were these things called the Targums. They were sort of a free-running paraphrase of Scripture, started orally, were eventually written down. And... Jews didn't speak God's name. They didn't do that because they thought it was irreverent. So other words were substituted like Holy One or the Word. One Targum uses the Word of God about 320 times in place of Yahweh. So whether you're Greek or Jewish and you hear what John's doing here, you know that he's saying something important, something about the divine. He's invoking the divine. 
But what John does here is no matter if you're Greek or Jewish, he turns your concept of God on its head and says it's not quite what you think. Because he's not content to settle for using those concepts. He upends them. And I think that this shows that, one, there's always a way in for God, but God is never going to be content to let our thoughts, our constructions, our wishes for who God is to be the things that define Him, because they're never quite right. The word was in the beginning with God, toward God. It's a unique preposition that implies people and further signifies accompaniment, relationship. Not casual, but close. Everything about the word is oriented toward the Father. For the Greek, the Logos was impersonal. John says, no. He subverts the Greek notion of the Logos. And then if being with God weren't enough at this point, John goes for broke. He crosses the divide that separates him from Jews as, as well. The word was God, he says, emphatically. Not God was the word, which would simply make him the same. John's construction here is important. He's maintaining both a separateness of the word and the father, but the sameness at the same time. And it's a hard thing to wrap our heads around. I believe he's also opening door to later revelation of the Trinity setting up the Holy Spirit. And understanding the oneness and separateness of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is enough to give you a colossal headache. It has divided theologians for 2,000 years. And amazing church councils have happened because of this one thing. But what John is doing is telling us something specific about Jesus, that he is more than just a person, that he is God. And verse 2 reiterates and emphasizes what is said in verse 1. And of course, there's one more thing about word. What do words do? They communicate. In this case, I think John is giving us a clue as to the nature of God. The New Testament scholar Leon Morris says that the choice of the word points to the truth that it is the, of the very nature of God to reveal himself, to communicate himself to us. There is so much there, and that's only point one. But don't worry, it's the longest. Second, Jesus is creator, verse 3. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. This is the very first thing we learn about God in the Old Testament, right? He is creator. And once the identity of the word is established, what does John do? He establishes that the word is the means of creation. All of creation. Everything that has come into being. <clears throat> now, to get technical, the first phrase uses the aorist tense in Greek. Why do we care? Because that conveys totality. The second phrase, where it says, has been made, is a perfect tense. That's different. And that, the perfect tense says, 
continuing existence of created things. Like it's something that happened and keeps on happening. Okay? So the Word didn't just speak the creation into existence. He also maintains it. He keeps it all together. This is the Word. Not some demigod or son of a god as the Greeks would have considered. It's not a god of a region or an element. This is the God who created everything. The Word is the means by which Yahweh creates the universe. This is who Jesus is and was before he was one of us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. If there was any doubt as to who the Word was as God before, John has left out any ambiguity. Third, in verse 4, Jesus is life. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. I like to look at images of the universe. You know, the pictures from Mars rovers and the Hubble Space Telescope and all of that stuff. I think they're just cool. But for all their beauty, they're essentially dead for all we know, right? Elements and gases and all of those things. But God is not simply the creator of a beautiful but dead universe. He's not. He's the creator of a living universe. And deeper than that, life doesn't come into being. It's not a created thing. Life is in the Word. Life is part of who God is. God is life. True life is in God. And we are tempted over and over in our lives to try to find our lives on our own. I've got to figure myself out. It's my life. No, it's not, because life is God's by definition. John tells us that we can't find life apart from God. Why? Because it's literally not possible. And I actually mean the word literally, literally here. Life is in Jesus. It always has been. Not just new life, though certainly that, but the very possibility of life. This is who Jesus is. This is why, as I've said in the past, N.T. Wright, the British theologian, says, when we choose against God, we choose death because we are choosing against life. It's not a punishment. It is a natural consequence of choosing against God. Jesus is the means by which we truly have life. And when we try to order our lives apart from him, we're already lost because we've chosen against life. Four, Jesus is light, verse four and five. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is more than life. He is the means by which we are even able to comprehend or think about life. What is light for? Other than to shine in your eyes if you are on the east side of the building right now. Light in the Sermon on the Mount, well, Jesus talks about light. That we, his disciples, are to be the light of the world in Matthew 5. Light illuminates. It guides. It's a beacon for safety, we learn there. 
And I think John is also echoing Genesis a little bit, let there be light. I think he's doing more than that. All of the earth is formless and void before he says that. But he's also setting up a contrast that if you look throughout the entire Gospel of John, John talks a lot about light and darkness. He sets them against one another. Here, light goes beyond creation. Light confronts a more important darkness, the darkness of sin. Jesus is the light that sin can't contain, can't overcome. Jesus is both life and the light of humanity, the source of who we are and the way back to it. That's the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas. That's the Jesus we serve. Point five, Jesus is incarnate. This is verses 9 and 14 and 16 and 17. This is the Christmas stuff that we are used to, right? It sounds kind of silly. Jesus is incarnate, in flesh, real. Of course Jesus is real, right? Well, there's a lot of people who don't believe that he is. Certainly not who John claims that he is, if he existed at all. And I could spend a lot of time and energy trying to prove the reality of Jesus And the truth of the matter is that if you are already convinced, then you would remain so. And if you're already skeptical, you would probably remain so too. Suffice it to say that virtually no reputable scholar of any stripe really denies the existence of Jesus. There's a few, but they're not taken seriously, not even by skeptics. But that's really not the point of these verses. The true light that gives life to everyone was coming into the world, verse 9. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verses 16 and 17, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The true light that Jesus offers is not just some spiritual truth, not deep-sounding words from some sort of guru that makes us feel better, or we can go, wow, that was deep, and really doesn't mean anything. This is not a God who is separate from his creation. This is not the God of Thomas Jefferson. This is a God who is willing to get into the mud and the dirt with us. Not a God who is content to let his creation flounder, but a God who became one of us and, as we read earlier from Acts, suffered with us. This is a God who, when you think about it, is willing not only to be associated with great empires like Rome, but lowly countries and peoples like Israel. A God who's willing to include in his human genealogy the good and the bad, prostitutes and foreigners and sinners of all kinds. I'm serious when I say read one of those genealogies sometime, and you'll realize there were some pretty scary characters in there. A God who is somehow willing to include all of this even though he can't abide sin. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of verse 14 in the message. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. 
This is Jesus, willing to become who we are so that the light may be seen, willing to be born in a backwater, no-account town to no-account parents for us. The implications of Jesus' incarnation are wide-reaching, and we have only a moment to touch on them. It's in the incarnation, John says, that we see the glory of the Son, not in the throne room of Isaiah, or on Sinai like Moses, but in a lowly and humble man who is the Son. i got to be honest, I don't get it, but it's true. Jesus' glory is seen in his humanity, in his willingness to become us. Talk about upside down. Certainly not the kind of glory we're inclined to, not the kind of glory that John's readers would have been looking for, but it is the glory of the Son. And the incarnation, John says, also shows us that grace comes through the Son. Grace, the unmerited favor of God, that thing that is so central to Christianity, comes through Jesus. Look, karma doesn't know grace. It has no room for it. Allah is not a God of grace. Jesus is. Jesus is grace in the flesh. Jesus grants us the grace of God, the fullness of that grace, the grace that surpasses the law and allows us to see the light. The incarnation also shows us that the truth is not simply some timeless thing out there, but that the truth is right here. Truth is vitally important to John. He uses the term 25 times in his gospel. Truth goes beyond the opposite of falsehood. For John, Jesus is truth. Truth is who Jesus is. The idea that truth is simply some objective cold thing out there is not true. Because Truth is both objective and subjective because it is a person, the person of Jesus. So truth is always personal. Truth is always connected to us because Jesus is a person. Truth, Morris says, as John sees it, is not basically something that can be kept apart from God. The word is the revelation of truth as well as grace. Grace taken by itself may have given people an unbalanced picture. Not only is God a God of grace, he is that, but he is the God who demands of his people truth in the inner parts. They must do the truth. Truth is so much deeper than a concept. It's who Jesus is. Six, Jesus is undemanding, verses 10 and 11. I honestly hesitated on this one. Because there's a sense in which that statement is not true. But look at verses 10 and 11 quickly, and you'll see what I'm getting at. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. After all we've seen so far, it's pretty clear that Jesus could have come to earth and demanded that everyone acknowledge him. He had that right. He's God. He's the creator. He could have said, hey, this is who I am. But he doesn't. Instead, he comes in a way that doesn't demand that we acknowledge him, 
sort of demands that we pay attention. He didn't demand that we bow before him. John says the creator of the universe was not recognized by his creation. The people he had claimed as his own don't recognize him, though he came as one of them. Why? Because he doesn't demand that we do so. He came in a way that says, are you paying attention? Are you orienting your life toward me? And the truth is, most of us, most of the time, don't. We go along with our busy lives, and we pass him by, and we miss what he's doing. We opt instead for things which are much more loud and obvious, things which take up our time and our energy and sap our ability to see what's right there in front of us. Jesus doesn't demand that we acknowledge him. He gives us a choice. Seven, Jesus is the open door to true family. Verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. What does Jesus offer? Be God's children. You saw my sister up here earlier. By my count, one of the things I love about that all-in video, by the way, this is free extemporaneous. There were at least four, I think five people directly connected to our church who are now serving around the world. My sister is one of them. And I think about this and I think about her because right now she's in the middle of trying to adopt two boys. Ten-year-olds. They're in Uganda. And their mother and father abandoned them. And when I read a passage like this, I see God's offer to make us his children. You know, we've just come through Christmas, and for most of us, that means family get-togethers. And maybe your family is completely sane, and everybody gets along swimmingly. Um, I'd like to meet you, um, if that's true. Uh, John Williams has been a longtime radio host on on uh, WGN radio off and on for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. And uh, he used to say, um, the holidays are much too important to spend with family. Um, and uh, think about it for a second and you'll get it. Um, because most of our families, truth be told, are more than a little screwed up. Because we're part of them, right? And all of us are messed up in some way, shape, or form. But I think about my sister and those two boys, and you know what? Messed up is more than they have. In John's day, family was everything. It's your station in life, your safety net, your hope for a future, and so much more. And John is saying, no matter who you are, where you're from, what your family's like, you can be part of God's family. And that's pretty amazing. Not the the distant and capricious gods of the Greeks, the people whose family you really didn't want to be part of, but this God, this creator God, this self-revealing God who has given life and a means to find him. The word has become flesh so that we can become part of his family. And all that we have to do is receive him. Look, our family baggage doesn't go away. We know that. 
we, has, we still have to live with that. But we get to be a much bigger and, dare I say, much more important family. That's who Jesus is. Finally, Jesus reveals the Father. Verse 8. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. We sort of end at the beginning. No one has seen God. No one but the Son, the Logos, the one who has come for us and is in closest relationship to the Father. This one makes the Father known. Jesus does the impossible. He shows us God. Moses, the giver of the law, the greatest prophet of the entire Hebrew nation, didn't see God. In fact, God told him he could only see the place where he had been. Comes out of the cave, you know, and he says, watch and you'll see, essentially, where I just passed by. And even that overwhelmed the people. Remember, he comes down from the mountain and he's glowing and the people go... Okay, that's enough. You talk to God, we don't want to. Because we don't know what that's all about. But when we see Jesus, we see the Father. That is the mind-blowing reality of Christmas. You know, sometimes we want to do the Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights, Baby Jesus prayer. I don't know if you've ever seen that, that movie or not. I've only seen parts of it. But I was one time with uh, pastor and teacher and author Calvin Miller at Pastor Tim's house. And he asked the question, have you all seen he, southern drawl and deep uh, sonorous voice? Have you all seen Talladega Nights? Are you too Christian for that? I thought that was the most hilarious thing I ever heard. And, and Ricky Bobby is a NASCAR driver, right? He's a caricature of a NASCAR driver. And he prays to little baby Jesus. And he says it's because he likes baby Jesus better than the grown-up one, right? Because babies are wiggly, but mostly undemanding, right? Other than time. They don't require that we completely... I know I'm saying this out loud and thinking, I had three kids, I know better than this. Um, uh, they don't demand in the way that an adult demands or can demand of us. But there's so much going on here. Jesus is so much more than simply that baby in the manger. And there's so much here in John 1, more than I would ever be able to cover in one sermon. We've barely scratched the surface. And, and I come to this passage and I kind of find myself like when, when Sierra was younger we used to watch Doctor Who together all the time and I don't know how much you know about Doctor Who it's over 50 years old BBC uh, TV series and the doctor is a time traveler and he travels around in a TARDIS and it looks like an old police call box blue you know go inside pick up the phone call the police but every character, when they come into this TARDIS for the first time, gets blown away because they walk in the door and it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And that's the way I feel about this passage. You open the door to John 1 and it's bigger on the inside. 
And when we look at it from the outside, especially if you've heard this passage over and over again, if you get used to it, you miss much of the depth, the inside. And I think too often that we, when we focus our Christian lives solely on ourselves, on what we ought to do or what we shouldn't do, when we look for what's the personal application for me right now, we miss the bigger on the inside of a passage like this. The Christian life is supposed to be bigger on the inside of us than the outside. And it's only when we look in that right direction, when we look to see who is Jesus really, what is John really saying about who Jesus is, that we open our eyes and we catch a glimpse of the depths of our Savior. And I wonder what would happen this coming year if instead of focusing on being a better Christian, whatever that means, of doing the right thing or setting the resolutions or whatever. Instead, if we decided, I'm going to spend my year seeing Christ more clearly, what would happen? What would happen if we focused on Jesus not just at Christmas or at Easter, but daily? My hunch is that we would become just a bit more like him. And to my way of thinking, that means good news for us and for the world around us that we see.